Today's scripture reading is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, 10, 18 through 25, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and 16 through 17. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and I will announce chapter and verse as we go. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Verse 18 through 25. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Verses 16 through 17. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. 
and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. Well, good morning, church, again. <clears throat> Second Samuel, if you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through. Uh, we've made our way through First Samuel, now into Second Samuel, and we're going to tackle two chapters uh, this morning. So uh, in no way will I be able to do a deep dive on all of the things contained in these two chapters because there are so much going on in these two chapters. But I, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would allow us to see uh, the main point. And I think one of the verses contained in uh, chapter six, and see if you can even pick it up as we, we go through it, is the main point of this. And if you recall the last week that I taught, which was two weeks ago, in the, in the chapters that I covered, I asked a question about the presence of God. And the question I asked about the presence of God is, is what do you believe about God when his presence or his movement isn't obvious? What do you believe about God when his presence or his movement isn't obvious? In the text, the movement or the presence of God wasn't necessarily obvious. In fact, God's name and, and God's specific movement, like a miraculous movement, wasn't obvious. And now we come to chapters 5 and 6 in 2 Samuel. The presence of God is still the theme. However, the presence of God in these two chapters, very obvious. Very obvious that God's presence is on display. And so David, uh, just to catch us up to speed, uh, David was uh, anointed many, many years ago by, uh, by Samuel that he would be the king of Israel. And up until this point, um, David hasn't officially become the king of Israel. He will in, in these chapters uh, today, but he has been the leader of the king of the south, right? In Hebron, it said, in, in, in Judah. And there was a different king in the north. That king uh, died. That king passed away. And so the elders of Israel, all of Israel, came together and came to David and said, You're our king, right? In verse 1 and, and 2, it talks about them coming to him after a long civil war between the north and between the south and go, David, we're flesh of flesh, bone of bone, and you, you're our guy. You're, you're the one who we believe the Lord has anointed to lead us and, and to guide us. And so there's this unity coming together in the nation of Israel. In verse 2, it's interesting. It says that the Lord, look at it. It says, and the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, it's interesting here that the, the word to describe David is what his vocation was all those years ago, right? What is that? That shepherd, that's exactly right. And he goes, you're going to shepherd my people. The Lord is going to David. You're going to shepherd my people. Now, in, for ancient Israel, really in, in ancient times, the idea of a king being a shepherd was a positive thing. That was actually a really, really good uh, uh, description of what a king was because it showed this care, it showed this concern, it showed this love like a shepherd has for his sheep. And so the Lord is looking at David and the, the elders of Israel recognize this about David to go, you're going to be the shepherd of these people. You're going to be the king. And so you should get this sense now, the north and the south that were divided, now David is at the helm and he's going to bring these two sides back together into unity. And to do so, David isn't going to ask them to come down to where he is in Hebron, is he? David has his eyes, both prophetically and strategically, on a new place, a new center for Israel. And that new center is Jerusalem. 
You see, David being shepherd and David moving the people into Jerusalem is a, is a prophetic fulfillment, really. And David being a shepherd ties him to, in John 10, Jesus being known as the what? The good shepherd. In, 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 in Hebrews also, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. And so David is simply this shadow of the good, perfect chief shepherd that's to come that is going to take a unified people to a place. And the place, the physical place David's going to take Israel to set up both a political and spiritual hub is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the most mentioned city in all of the Bible. It's mentioned, I believe, 811 times. That's not necessarily all that interesting to me. What's interesting to me is the second most mentioned city. You know what it is? Babylon. Babylon. The city of exile. In Revelation, it talks about the things that will come out of Babylon, and it talks about in Revelation as well, as I'll end and talk about this as well, a new city, a new Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21. But Jerusalem isn't the city that David has just chosen. The reason David has chosen Jerusalem is because the Lord has chosen Zion. This is Psalm 132. It is a strategic place because of its geography and because of its water source. Now, if, you, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or, or, or if you go to Jerusalem, you'll know that it sits on the top of a hill with these steep edges around it. And even in the text, the problem, as David eyes Jerusalem and gets ready to go to Jerusalem, what's wrong? That there are people living there, right? The Jebusites are already there. So David has to overtake a group of people who are already in Jerusalem. And here's how confident the Jebusites are. You can look in your text. Here's how confident they are of how strategic and how well set up this place is to be protected just by its geography is they literally put the blind people around it to protect it. The lame and blind, they say, can protect Jerusalem. So when people, when the adversaries would come and try to take over Jerusalem, here's what they would say. They would hear them coming, and they would just roll stones like down the hill and take them out. And so there's like, they're, they're, the Jebusites are thinking, there's no way. David can't come in here. Nobody can come in here. Except David's not working on his own strength, is he? David's not working in his own power. That the Lord has set this up. And so here's what our scripture says, is that nevertheless... David took the city. It doesn't even necessarily like describe how he does it in, in, in great detail, even though there is some detail there and we could get into some detail, but it's just like the Lord's going, listen, if I have ordained it, if I've said it because I reign over it all, because I'm sovereign over it all, nevertheless, David's going to take that city because it's my city, the Lord says, and my people are going into it. In verse 10, it says, and David became greater and greater. Why? Because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's why, don't forget it. Why is David growing in greatness and stature? It's not because of his military prowess. It's not because of his political influence. It's not because of his charisma. David is growing in influence because, solely because, the Lord is with him. God is with David. In verse 12, it says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom. For what reason? Look at this in verse 12. For the sake of his people, Israel. David knew that the reason God had placed him as the anointed king over Israel was for the sake of the people. Now, do you remember early on in 1 Samuel, the people demanded a king, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king, not just, not just God like one that you want, yo, give us a king like the nations. 
And God goes, I'm going to give you a king, right? And he gave them Saul, right? And they became like the nations. But David goes, I'm going to give you a king that's close to my heart. And that king is going to understand the point of his rule and his reign is to care for my people, to care for you. That's the kind of king you need. And David understood this. David realized God had raised him up to take care of his people. And let me just give a little side point there. That that's the heart of ministry. Now, no, no, don't just think when I say ministry, you look up on this stage or you think of vocational ministers, even though that is the point, right? The scriptures are very clear that all of the saints of God do the ministry of God's work, right? And what is that ministry? That ministry is to care for people, is to care for God's people, is to care for people as God has cared for them, as God would want you to love them and serve them. But also David has another duty, a duty set up early in 1 Samuel that God said, listen, this is one of the responsibilities for my king that Saul never fulfilled. And this is found in verses 17 through 25 of chapter 5. One of the duties and responsibilities of the king of Israel was to defeat God's people's enemies, primarily of which the Philistines. The Philistines were Israel's chief enemy at this point, in the point of the king, one of the jobs of the king was to defeat the Philistines. David does not delay in doing that. He has taken Jerusalem. He moves in. This is God's place. And then he goes out against the Philistines to fulfill his job as king over Israel. Now, this is verse 17. This is, this is where it gets really interesting, and we're going to get into some details here. This isn't the first time David has fought the Philistines, right? David and Goliath, you know the story. This is not the last time he'll fight the Philistines. But here he sees the Philistines have come up against him. They now know that David is the king of Israel. In verse 19, here is always the key. Here is always the key to David's success. In verse 19, and David inquired of the Lord. So David sees the Philistines coming up against him, coming up against Israel. Notice that David didn't go, listen, I'm the king now. I'm a military beast. I've won battles before. I've done it before. I've got the power. I've got the people now. I've got a unified nation. We've got unity. Let's go whip the Philistines, right? Like that's like a movie talk. No, what David does is this. He sees the Philistine coming, and what does it do? He drops to his knees. He finds himself before the Lord, inquiring before the Lord. You want to know when David is absolutely at his best? There it is, when he's inquiring of the Lord. The same is true of you and me when we're calling out to God. Notice that David doesn't just look at this opportunity and go, listen, we've got the resources, we've got the manpower, we've got the intellect to do it. No, he asks the Lord, Lord, what do you want? How do you want us to do this? Do you want us to do this? And notice, the Lord answers. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I certainly will give the Philistines into your hand. Praise God, right? And notice David doesn't delay then. David's not like, well, that's kind of risky. No, he says, this is the word of the Lord. And he goes, and, and they named this place. David came to Baal Perazim, and the Lord defeated them there, meaning the Philistines. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. The Lord breaks through. So this is battle number one. 
He inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, go up. He wins. The Lord breaks through in a miraculous way. It's interesting, the, 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 the place, Baal Perizim. Now, Baal, some of you are thinking, wait, isn't that a foreign god? Isn't that, in, in, in your right, but not in this context. The word Baal in this context simply means the word Lord. It means Lord. The Lord breaks through. And so in this place, in this particular moment, David sets up an altar to say, listen, our God is the God who breaks through against his enemies. He sets up shop to go, listen, all the people in Israel, you need to understand this battle wasn't won by our hands. It wasn't won by our expertise. It was won because the Lord broke through. And so let me, let me pause and, and talk to us for just a second. That that same God who broke through for David and for Israel is the same God who breaks through strongholds and enemies today. The chief of which, through Christ Jesus, is sin. The stronghold of sin. The thing we, we have no power to change. The corruption of our hearts and our flesh apart from Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, even when you are in Christ, how many of you know you still struggle and battle with the implications of sin? Anybody else going to be honest with me this morning, right? That we still need the Lord of breakthrough to break through in our lives, right? Belperazim, to free us from the things that have a tendency to take hold of us. This morning, some of you, the Lord has brought you in here because he wants to set you free. He wants to set you free from addictions. He wants to set you free from anxieties and depressions that have had strongholds on you. That just as David would set up this monument, David would set up this place to go, this is going to be known as a place where the Lord has broken through. Today, the Lord is going to set up a place where you're going to see the Lord has broken through. The Lord has broken through that addiction. He's broken through that pain. He has set me free from that, that captivity. The Lord wants to do that. That is our God's heart for his people. And keep going. Um, and, okay, I'll, I'll I've got time. Okay, uh, verse 21, just real quick. The Philistines, I, I love this picture because this is such a picture of, of idolatry. Verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Now, David's men didn't carry them away to worship them. David's men, what it means by carried them away, took them away to destroy them, get rid of them. They got rid of them, okay? Now, the writer of 1 Samuel, if you, you read this in the Hebrew, literally the Philistines left, that's a Hebrew word, azab, their idols, astab there. Azab, astab. Azab, astab. Azab, astab. Now, see, they would have read that exactly like that, and they would have laughed. They would have been like, I see the word play here. They left their idols. So the word for left and idols, azab, astab, is meant to be a word play to mean this, that your idols will always leave you, abandon you when you need them most. So the Philistines, they brought their idols thinking they're going to be the things that give them the power, give them the breakthrough. Then the Lord of hosts shows up and rocks their world. And guess what? Azab, astab. They leave them behind. They're like, they, don't, they have no power. We're getting out of here. And David and his men scooped them up and threw them away. Listen, your idols, the things that you worship above God, hold or cling to above God, will always abandon you when you need them most. When you're clinging most tightly to them, thinking, oh, you'll help me weather this storm, you'll realize you're grasping the wind. That they have no power to save. They have no power to deliver what they, what they, what they speak they have power to deliver. They never will. That's why they're idols. That's why they're fake. That's why they're false. That's why God in his love and his grace and his mercy are revealing them. Even this morning. 
revealing the things that you worship above God in his presence. That's just a side note, okay? Next. Verses 22 through 23, these pesky Philistines show back up, right? So they go out. They didn't learn their lesson, right? And the Philistines came up yet again, this is verse 22, and spread out in the valley of Rephium. And when David inquired of the Lord, verse 23, wait a minute. David is at his best when he's doing what? Inquiring of the Lord, coming before the Lord. Now he just had a major victory against the Philistines. How many of us, we would have been guilty, were like, I inquired back then, right? And the Lord showed up, and now they show back up again. How many of you, be honest, in situations like this, you'd be like, let's just run the same game plan. Let's just run the same strategy we just ran. It just worked. But David's smarter than that. David's wiser than that. David understands the heart of God in more depth than that. And so he finds himself with the Philistines mounting up yet again. He finds himself doing what? Inquiring of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do this time? And maybe even the back of David's mind, he's going, I bet it's the same thing. But what does the Lord say? And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. What? He says, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, by the way, that's not marching from the, the soldiers of the Philistines. That means when the presence, when you hear the presence of God go before you. Woo! David's like, okay. He's like, he's like, I thought I was sure of the last battle. I'm really sure of this battle. Because when he says, when you hear the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him. And he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Now, here's what I want us to hear about this. That when it comes to going to battle in this text, God had two very different plans to attack the same enemy. One, he said, go up. One, he said, no, go around the back. This story in this particular scene emphasizes the action of the Lord in going out and defeating Israel's enemies, the tree shaking, giving awareness that the Lord is on the move. You see, we make a false and potentially detrimental assumption about God when we assume he only operates in one way. He said, but Kyle, um, I've read my Bible before, and Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning he's unchanging. He's unchanging, right? Oh, yes, our God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever in his character, in his nature, but listen to me, he changes in the way he operates and executes that character and that nature. Think about Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, Hebrews 13 is about Jesus. Think about Jesus. Did he have one way of doing things in his earthly ministry? One way of displaying his heart, his character, his natures? Think about, think about how Jesus healed people. If you, if you know your, your New Testament, if you know the Gospels and the story of Jesus, how many different ways did Jesus heal people? I don't actually know. That would be a cool thing to find out, right? Sometimes he said, go over there and dip. Sometimes he said, rub mud on your eyes. Sometimes he said, hey, come here, let me touch you. Sometimes it was that he was touched by someone else. And all of these different ways ended in the same result of them being healed. Different ways. Different modes of, of operation. Different ways of showing his disciples his power. 
What was he trying to get them to see? The same thing First and Second Samuel has been trying to get us to see. Seek God. Inquire of the Lord. Lean into his presence, his voice, rather than presuming you know how God works. We're just going, well, he worked like this back then. So I'm assuming that's how he'll work again. Something we've talked about here at the parks before is this idea of living on yesterday's manna. You know what manna is? Manna is the the provision of food that God provided for his children in the wilderness. That so many times in our lives, we we live on old manna when what God has said to us is that I want to give you today the daily bread. How's it going to come? It may come by your hand. It may come out of the sky. It may come from someone else. I don't know, but it will come. You see, here's what I know about the Lord and how he works, and this has proven true for the 30-plus years of my life walking with Jesus, and it's from his word. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Or how about this one, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. What is that? The Holy Spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how our God works. You say, but Kyle, why? Why does our God work like that? I don't know. But I'm going to give you my best attempt at answering that. I believe one of the primary reasons that the Lord would work and operate in this way is because he's trying to kill the lie of spiritual independence in our lives. Listen, political, and speaking of his country, independence is great. Yes, we celebrate it. We live in the beauty of that reality. But spiritual independence leads to death every time. And so the Lord operates in this way, I believe, so that we stay spiritually dependent on him. David is at his best when? When he's inquiring of the Lord, when he's before the Lord's presence, when he's seeking the Lord, when he's understanding who the Lord is and what he wants him to do. We must stay close to him. Now, speaking of getting close to God, chapter 6. God's presence. David now has these military victories. He has moved the people of God into Jerusalem again to make it a political center and a spiritual center. And David goes, what we must return back to Jerusalem is the Ark of the Covenant. Is the Ark of the Lord that has been away from from central worship of God's people for some time now. This, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Lord is the center or the dwelling place of the manifest presence of God. And so David rightly says we need to bring this back in to Jerusalem because he understands more than anything we need the nearness of God to us. We need the presence of God, but something we have to understand about the presence of God is this, is that it's not just good, it's dangerous, to borrow a term from C.S. Lewis, right? In Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe with Aslan, right? Safe? Who said anything about Aslan being safe? But he's good. The presence of God is not just good, it's also dangerous. And that is chapter 6. You see, there's this scene playing out at the beginning of David bringing the ark in. 
And look at it in verse 3 as we go through this really quickly. Verse 3, but they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Okay, that sounds okay. Look at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and, and castanets and cymbals. Like there's this worship service going on, right, with the ark of God on a cart, okay? You didn't know that. The ark of God on a cart, they're coming in and they are celebrating. They're going, yes, they're doing the right thing. This is even like the right atmosphere in terms of like how they're responding to the ark of God. The problem with this, the problem with this scene is that you can't bring the ark of God in on a cart. That's forbidden. Exodus chapter 25, Numbers chapter 4, tell the people of God how they are to carry the ark. They're to carry it by the Levites on poles. So think about this. So the people of God trying to bring the, the, the ark back into the center of Jerusalem, put it on a cart. And God's like, wait a minute. I'm not going to, I'm not going to excuse your disobedience, right? I'm not going to let this slide just because you have really loud music and it's really pretty and it's really good and there's a lot of emotion there. Listen, there's a consequence for disobedience. Listen, they knew and I don't know if these guys were like, look, we got this new technology and it's called a cart. We don't have to carry it. It's got wheels. Like this thing's heavy. We're done with that. Praise God, right? And God's like, no, listen, here's the problem with you using a cart. You have just made the, 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 the nature of carrying the presence of God mechanical. The presence of God is meant to be felt. The weight of God is meant to be felt. His glory is meant to be felt on people. His people, his image bearers from Genesis chapter 1. He goes, you've missed it. And so what happens in this is you get the picture of how dangerous God's presence is when it's mishandled. Literally, one of the oxen stumbles, okay, and the cart rattles off. And one of the guys who's walking with it, probably celebrating the new technology, right? What happens? Touches it. And the Lord strikes him dead. And everybody takes a step back. Even David, look at this. In verse 9, it says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. The same David from chapter 5, now in chapter 6. It says he was afraid of the Lord? I would be too, by the way, right? But notice that David's fear here causes him to shrink back. And he says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words... David asks this question, how can the presence of God be in my presence? If that's the result, if that's what it's like, if that's the power of God's glory and his weight and his holiness, how can it ever come close to me? David, a sinful man. In David, it says he's, he's, he's angry, he's, he's fearful, he sends it away. And he sends it away uh, actually to Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who is a Gentile, non-Jew, Right? He's like, you deal with it. See if you can handle it. And guess what? He rightly handles it. And it says that the ark blesses that family. And, and, and I believe this was, this was part of David maturing and growing up a little bit. David had to realize and work through his own initial feelings of fear and anger to understand that the way in which he was handling God's presence in that moment was not in line with God's will. 
But verse 9, David does ask the question. How can God's presence come to me? How can God's presence come close to a sinful man like me? Warren Wearsby, commentator on this section, he says this. He says, the church needs to heed this reminder and return to the word of God for an understanding of the will of God. No amount of unity or enthusiasm can compensate for disobedience. When God's work is done in man's way and we imitate the world instead of obeying the word, we can never expect the blessing of God. The crowds may approve of what we do, but what about the approval of God? The way of the world is ultimately the way of death. That's a wake-up call. And so then David wakes up in verses 13 and 14. Um, David has the ark now brought in with sacrifices and songs of worship in the proper way. And by the way, the, the last people to put the ark on animals like oxen, do you remember who that was in 1 Samuel? The Philistines. You say, well, how'd the Philistines get away with it? They didn't know any better. These were God's people with God's word and they knew better. And they chose to go a different way. And so now David brings in the ark in the right way, in the right form with these sacrifices and songs of worship. And this is where that all familiar scene where David just worships unabandoned, right? Unrestricted worship. Okay, now there are some like weird talks and teachings out there about like David stripping down, like fully stripping down. David didn't strip down fully, okay? He's clothed. It says he has a linen ephod on. But what he did strip down was from his royal garb. He took off his royal garments. He laid those aside to worship before the Lord, to be near to the presence of God. However, there is one in this scene who looks at David and looks at his extravagance of worship, because there's always one, right? But the lady with the alabaster jar, those were the disciples, by the way, going, wait, couldn't, we could have fed all the poor with that. And Jesus goes, don't you dare hinder her worship. And David, in this scene, it's his wife, Michael. And it says that in, in, in chapter 6, it says that she despises him in her heart as she watches him dance. As he worships and lifts his hands in full surrender. In verse 20, and David comes back to his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to David and said, and this is meant to be sarcastic, by the way. How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his ser servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Can you imagine? Like, this is so how the enemy works also. Like, you just have this moment with the Lord, this moment before the Lord, and, and I'm not saying you always come home and this is like, but there's always someone waiting for you to like pour water on it, right? To just like squelch it. And she goes, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You know what she's saying here? She's going, how you gave away your glory today. How you just humbled yourself. Now, the word honor here is the same word for glory or weight that has been woven through First and Second Samuel this whole time. Essentially, Michael's saying, you made a fool of yourself today, David. You're, a, you're the stinking king of Israel. Act like it. Don't you care what people think about you? And what was David's response? Unlike Saul, Saul, all he cared about was his power, was his position, was what people thought about him. Maybe it runs in his blood with Michael here. 
David is like, oh, I care what people think about me. But infinitely more, I care about what God thinks about me and how he sees me. And this celebration and this worship is before the Lord and for the Lord alone. Listen, how often are we more controlled by our preferences and by our feelings and by the fear of what people might think about us rather than the very word of God himself, rather than the very presence of God himself? Listen, that is a control shaft, if you will, of so many of our hearts, the fear of man, the fear of what people think. Maybe it's even your own thoughts going, Lord, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not holy. I can't, I can't do this. And maybe even in that question, you're, you're asking the very same thing David did in, in verse 9. How can a holy God come near to an unholy me? This God who is dangerous and good. You see, the fear of the Lord is not about keeping our distance from God, the very first reaction David had, send it away. The fear of the Lord, rather, is about drawing near to him, this God who is dangerous and good. Some of you, you're quite convinced of the dangerous nature of God. However, the thing that will convince you by faith to draw near to God is that you believe he's good. So the question, even this morning, is the same one David asked. How can that God, holy, perfect, just, righteous, come near to me? I'm glad our Bible's not silent on that. Ephesians 2 gives the answer. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, here it is, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. How? Only through Jesus. Only through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can we draw near to God. Only, not your strength, not your good works, right? Now, not, not even the, the, the Old Testament, right? Doing things exactly by the letter of the law. No, it's only in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and putting your faith and trust in him that he's the only way you can approach God. John Piper um, put it like this. Um, he said, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there. Think about that for a bit. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. You see, fast forward to the very last book of your Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 talks about a new king and a new city. A king far greater than David. And a city far greater than this earthly Jerusalem. It talks about a new Jerusalem with a new king, King Jesus, that the people will be brought near through that king and to that king, not just to receive his presence, but to receive himself. And listen, our hearts long for that new Jerusalem. Our hearts long for the day of brokenness and sin and pain are no more, where we don't just experience the presence of God, but we're there with God himself. How can that be? Only through Jesus do you draw near.
And so we're going to draw near to these tables by walking up and grabbing the elements this morning. So hosts, get ready to lead us. And if you're new and you haven't done this with us before, our hosts will, will, will exit your rows, tell you when to go, grab the elements, bring them back to your seats, and we're going to take them together. But listen, church, we have the access this morning because of Christ Jesus, as Hebrews says, to boldly approach his throne, to come before him and to be met there, not with his wrath, but with his goodness. Listen, if you're not in Christ, you have every reason to fear God and run the other way. But for those of you who are in Christ, you have every reason to fear God and run to him. Run to him because that's where you'll find his love and his mercy and his grace, what your heart longs for and needs in this moment. So let me pray for us and then our host will lead us. Holy Spirit, help us to steward this moment for the glory of the Father through Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray.